or she should possess that. There's a story in the in the Mahabharat, some of you may be familiar with, helps us to appreciate the position of an ungrateful person. There was a cobbler, it said, there, and he went to living his profession to find fortune. He went wandering, and in the midst of his wandering through the forest, he met the uh, king of the the, the the cranes, herons, and um, and by the time he had, uh, arrived there, the he was looking for fortune and a new new life, leaving aside his cobbler's life. But by this time, he was famished and and uh, withering, and so. Uh, the crane graciously offered to prepare a meal for him, pretty much vegetarian. <laughs> Maybe Ganga Paul, the fruit of the Ganga, um, was in his diet as well. But at any rate, he fed him nicely and took care of him. And he asked about his destination and search and so forth, and the cobbler revealed to him that he was looking for a fortune, and so the crane said, you know, there's just not far from here, there's a king who's very wealthy, and if you go there and uh, tell him your position, he's very generous also, I'm sure he'll give you something, but you have to go in daylight and return in daylight, because in his kingdom there are many cannibals, and his generosity is such that he shelters them and takes care of them also. But if you reach there in the dark or, 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 or leave there after nightfall, then the cannibals might um, make dinner out of you. So anyway, he went and he met the king, and the king was very gracious, and he found that he'd been sent by the king of the cranes, who was a friend of his. And um, so he gave him some, some gold and some jewels and and so forth, and uh, and then he went on his way, the cobbler, and and uh, as wealth has a tendency to, to do, it, it it intoxicated him. He began to feel pride, prideful, and whatnot, and he came back to where the uh, king of the cranes was staying, and he sat with him for some time, and then he uh, being. Uh, an omnivore himself, he he decided that uh, that he would like to eat some crane meat. So he killed the crane and ate the crane. This is something about what wealth, intoxication of wealth, can can do to one. Sense gratification can make one do things that um, are unbecoming. So news came that the crane had been killed because his constituents went and told the king. And so the king sent out his party to look for him, and lo and behold, it was the, was the cobbler. Actually, the cobbler fled from the scene and, and left the jewels, and so they could understand that oh, the cobbler had been here, and they traced him out and they caught him. And so they brought him to the king, and they, they wanted uh, to punish him, and so it was suggested 
by the other cranes that uh, they, they give him to the cannibals to eat. So they, they threw him this food to the cannibals. But when the cannibals found out that he had been ungrateful in the way that he was to the king, to the crane, then they refused to eat him. <laughs> hmm. This is the story. So they were man-eaters by nature, but they wouldn't eat an ungrateful man. Hmm? So gratitude is very uh, basic to, um, to the human experience, really. In, in, in other words, as much as we're really becoming uh, human, then we, we uh, will come to appreciate that there are things in our lives, in all of our lives, it, matter, it doesn't matter who we are, whether we're religious or irreligious, we all, it's universally recognized that we have things to be thankful for, people to be thankful for, who, who've made our lives possible. And one, to one extent or another, our standing in life, our success in life, our happiness in life is dependent upon someone somewhere along the line. So there are, everyone has received gifts in life. This is the idea. So therefore, gratitude should be uh, really, and it is, a pretty much a universal principle, universally accepted in human society. It's to show, it's a kind of a kindness shown to, uh, of appreciation hmm? for uh, uh, kindness shown to oneself. <clears throat> so, the idea is that in in showing gratitude, we show appreciation. So, uh, gratitude gives us a deeper appreciation, a deeper understanding, knowledge even, if you will, hmm, about something. If you appreciate a thing more and more, then you understand it more and more. Hmm? You gain a better understanding of it. So this is interesting. By, by, by showing gratitude, we can actually advance in in understanding, deepen our understanding of the nature of how life works. And so in, in, in the uh, Hindu uh, world, or in, uh, uh, let's say in, in, in Bhagavad Gita, for example, we, we find the idea in, what is it, uh, in the third chapter, in the beginning, that one should be show gratitude for the bounty of life. Food comes from grains, grains come from rains, rains come from powers beyond our control. So to show some appreciation for the acts of nature that uh, are involved in providing our necessities. This is kind of the really the, the beginning of of a uh, uh, religious life. Um, but uh, rather than say it's the beginning of religious life, it would be appropriate to say it's it's beginning of entering into the mysteries of life. Um, I've said it before, it's worth repeating, that without the sun, of course, we cannot see. We have eyes, but all the beautiful forms that we can appreciate through them are dependent upon sun. So the rishis, the sages, they conceived that eyes, 
for seeing are dependent upon sun. So my capacity to see, and as well with other senses, to taste, to hear, to smell, touch, and so forth, and experience life materially, is dependent upon something outside of my own senses, something in nature. So there's a correspondence, a relationship between, for example, my eyes and the sun. So for seeing, I owe a debt to the sun. So Surya Namaskar. And so on. And to the uh, prominent features of nature that, that, that preside over my senses, this body is like a microcosmic representation of the macrocosm of the whole cosmos. So to recognize that, this is gratitude, tribute to the sun, to the, to the wind, to the so on and so forth. Um, this is not to get away from, to move away from reality and make up some myth about gods and goddesses and, uh, and uh, a backward way of, of uh, looking at life that sometimes, as sometimes it might be thought. No, it's a very, actually, uh, it's a progressive way of entering, as I say, into the mysteries of, of life, understanding my relationship with uh, material nature. So, this in Gita, at least, is, is, is described as kind of the beginning of, of spiritual life. It's kind of a thanksgiving uh, in the Christian world. This is, of course, prominent to thank God for the bounty of, um, uh, of uh, our daily bread, for example. But even really, uh, uh, the, even uh, we sometimes characterize Christianity as being a religion asking for handouts from God, but it's quite a bit more than that, actually. And I think most Christians who are real practitioners will appreciate that uh, that thanking God should be more for than than just for for, for bread, but uh, for the uh, for life itself, and and so on. So as the gratitude increases from appreciating in order to exist materially as we conceive of ourselves, hmm, as members of a particular nation, a particular sex, a particular family, and so forth, we require help from nature and, and so on, and, and to acknowledge that vastness of nature and pay tribute and gratitude and, and so forth. As much as this kind of gratitude gives us deeper appreciation, it gives us deeper understanding, and so it should, if it's done appropriately, move us in the direction of, from a religious life, if you will, or from a, a superficial understanding of nature and my dependence upon it and material orientation to, to, to life and how it works, to a, a spiritual orientation. In other words, the more we appreciate the movements of nature and, and that there's a power beyond ourself and um, that uh, we're, uh, we're 
have received and are receiving gifts and so forth and so on. This kind of appreciation can move us to to uh, the thinking about the, the the fact that that we ourselves are uh, an experiencer. We are consciousness. To move from a material uh, understanding of life to a spiritual understanding of life. In the Veda, of course, it means to move from a religious orientation to life to a, a spiritual orientation. To thank the gods and heavens and for my material well-being and so forth and so on and as I become pious as I become virtuous then personal integrity comes into consideration you see there are there are in material life there are well material life is basically about desires we desire to be happy and we desire to avoid unhappiness so, uh, and these desires by the rishis have been the seers, experiences have been categorized in three different basic categories. The desire for power. Power means security. Power means money, security, stability. Power, pleasure, we want to become powerful, we want to become wealthy, we want to become secure, we want to become gratified. So power, pleasure, and uh, virtue, or knowledge, for its own sake. These are the, the basic categories into which all our desires that constitute material life have been uh, divided into whether she's power, pleasure, and virtue. And the, what disposes us towards one or two or three or any combination of these, of course, is the influences of material nature that we call the gunas. So there's the tamaguna, there's the rajaguna, and there's the sattvaguna. So Tamaguna influences us to be gratified, to gratify ourselves. Rajaguna gratify, uh, 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 hmm? influences us to, to want to be somebody, to have security, to have some power, some recognition. Tamaguna's influences we want to pleasure ourselves and we do it and we find it's not as pleasurable, but well, we do it again and we do it again and we do it again we do it again. This is Tamaguna. Rajaguna is a little progressive. We don't do the same thing over and again, again and again. We set goals for ourselves to accomplish. I want to become city councilman. I want to become prime uh, the, the, the senator, state senator. Now I want to become U.S. senator. Now I want to become the president, something like that. Hmm? I made a hundred thousand. I want to make hundred million. Hmm? Uh, there's some progress in this, and that and that there's no, you're not just repeating the same thing over again and again 
and not really getting any happiness out of it, just momentary, and foolishly going back for the same thing again. There's some sense of accomplishment in Rajagun. And above that, of course, is the Satvagun and its influence, which makes a person pursue the virtuous life, a life of personal self-integrity. Uh, With virtue and self-integrity comes clarity of thought, knowledge, deeper understanding. And what does the understanding come to in the virtuous person? What makes the virtuous life more valuable than the power-seeking or pleasure-seeking life? Who's to say one's better than the other? Reason is, the Rishi's determined, because in the virtuous life one can see clearly. And what does one see? One sees this, that living to become something obscures the fact that we are something. I want to become gratified. I want to become secure. I want to be, uh, to become virtuous, knowledgeable. Obscures the fact that what that the soul is a unit of happiness itself. That the self is secure, cannot die. And that it can be knowledgeable, can be aware of itself fully. And knowing that, little remains to be known. It, 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 it transcends all of material knowing. So the soul is a unit of sat-chidananda. But in relation to matter, mixed up with matter, under the influence of the gunas, he pursues artha, kama, and dharma. Artha means power, money. Kama means sense pleasure. Dharma means virtue. Again, why the virtuous life is valuable? Because when he reaches the, the, the upper end of virtuous life, virtuous pursuit, he sees clearly, she sees clearly, and can see that a life spent trying to become something is a life spent obscuring the fact of what I am. Hmm? You see, material nature, we have material nature, we have the soul, and we have God. In matter, in soul, in God, there's pleasure, power, and, and knowing in all of these. In matter, it's present in a distorted way. Pleasure in a distorted way. Pleasure through just pleasuring the senses in relation to the sense objects. Which doesn't really make anyone happy for very long. It makes one long to repeat the same thing again. There's material knowledge. There's a sense of security we can get in relation to matter, but it's here today and gone tomorrow. We get it by trying to take from the material nature in the same way we try to get pleasure from material nature by adding things on to our lives. But this addition, trying to become something, as I say, this is the problem. It obscures the fact 
that we are something far more pleasurable, far more virtuous, and far more knowing than anyone who pursues these things, tries to become these things in relation to material nature. Well, in material life, we pursue artha, dharma, kam dharma, means, again, power, pleasure, and, and virtue. If the virtuous life is pursued, one can see this. One can glimpse this fact that trying to become something is the whole problem. It obscures the fact that we are something, what we are. So the virtuous person then, from this platform we call sattva, a bridge is built, a bridge from, from matter to spirit. And by the energy of spiritual practice, virtuous person can cross that bridge and know oneself and can cease the struggle of trying to be something. This is the whole problem. Now, one thing we should consider about this is that if I say to you, enlightened life is such that you already have it, you are enlightened, it's not something to be attained. It's already existing. You, in other words, we, are already existing. Luminous like the sun, but we are covered like a jewel. We are covered like by a mountain and we become black like coal. So it's not something to attain. It already exists. But don't misunderstand. Therefore, you have nothing to do. Some people say, the soul, the self is already enlightened. There's nothing you can do to become enlightened. Why are you wasting your time with your spiritual practice? There's something you can do to become enlightened. You know what it is? Stop trying to become. And that takes some practice. <laughs> Stop trying to become happy. But by pleasuring yourself through sense gratification, stop trying to become powerful and secure by acquiring a power base, increasing your uh, bank balance, and so forth. Now, as I've mentioned, there is some value in becoming virtuous. But what is the value in that? That you can see clearly. The virtue, real virtue lies beyond anything that would be considered virtuous in this world, but it should include that as well. That should be the, it should arise out of that kind of a base. So some virtuous life, moral life, introspective life, a life of, uh, of uh, integrity, this is valuable. Mahabharu in his Shikshastakam teaches us, first we should look for this. He teaches us to chant the name of Krishna. And look for this, that virtuous life will come. Anartha nivriti. Anartha. What we've described, dharmartha kama, these are arthas. The fourth of them is, puru, is moksha. That means enlightenment, liberation. Dharmartha kama moksha. These are called purush artha. Purusha means person, and artha means, means necessity. So the necessities, the values, the goals of human society, 
Purushartha, four. Pleasure, power, virtue, and freedom. Moksha. What is freedom? Freedom from trying to be virtuous, trying to become virtuous, trying to become gratified, trying to become powerful. Hmm? Realize that you are virtuous by nature. You are happy, joyful by nature. Hmm? You are powerful by nature. Nothing can destroy you. Your existence is not really... The thread is false. Hmm? You can never die. Mahabhu says, by chanting Krishna Nam, look for this first, virtuous life. That means anarthanibhiti, anarthas, arthas that are not worth pursuing, anarthas, they should be retired. False necessities. As this happens, when this spiritual practice, when a culture of, of, of singing the name of God becomes... Uh, undeterred. From undeterred, then it becomes unmotivated. We come to this fourth verse of Mahaprabhu Shikshastakam. He says, Nadanam, Nadanam, Nasundarim Kovitamba, Jagadishakamaye, Mama Janmane Janmanishware, Babatad Bhakti Rahay Takitwe. Here Mahaprabhu is saying, I don't want to become powerful. I don't want to become gratified. I don't have any interest in becoming virtuous for its own sake. But he says another thing, too. He says, Nadanam. Dhanam means wealth. He says, I don't want any wealth. But wealth means not only artha or material uh, security through earnings. Now also means the wealth of of uh, of um, a religious life, of moral life. So he's saying, I'm not interested in artha, I'm not interested in dharma. This is very interesting. Nadanam, then nadjanam, nasundarim kovitam. He says, Nada, I'm interested in janam. Janam means followers. He had no emotional need for followers, for companionship, Sundarim. Sundarim may also mean intimate companionship. I have no interest in, this means karma, pleasuring. He's saying, I have no interest in, 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 in power, in becoming powerful, in trying to become pleasured, in trying to become virtuous. Kovitamba. He says, neither kovitam. Kovitam means knowledge. There is material knowledge. And there is another kind of knowledge also. Hmm? Knowledge that sheds light on the futility of uh, material pursuit. Mahaprabhu is saying, I have no interest in knowledge. Knowledge corresponds with what? What do they say at the university? Knowledge will set you free. With freedom, that is moksha. Hmm? Again, freedom from trying to become, of the necessity to become. We are possessed of a necessity to become the very things that we already are in a way that we will never realize them. This is the idea. Mahabharata has seen through the whole world, it means. This Purushartha means the whole world. The Hindu rishis have divided all of the pleasure-seeking, all, all of the desires that make the world go round, which are basically 
seeking pleasure and avoiding pain into these three pursuits and then the pursuit to be freed from them, moksha. He says, I don't want any moksha either, any liberation. I have no desire for any of the goals that our uh, persons are motivated by, by the influence of the gunas of material nature. You see, matter has an effect physically and psychically upon us because it has the divisions of subtle and gross. So there's gross matter and subtle matter. So we have our bodies and we have our psyche. And these gunas, these modes of nature, they are manifest in, in, in both planes. Matter has the ability to make itself known, an object. That's called sattva, in the words. Material things have an ability to be noticeable or uh, something like that. That is called sattva. And all material things have some motion. That is called rajas. And all, all matter has inertia. That is called tamas. And these, as they, these are the, there's a gross manifestation in matter of these modes, the modus operandus of, of the material stuff. So similarly in the psyche, it appears, the subtle manifestation of matter. So, in, and, and then in, in the words, these, these words, the, the, the desires are coming to be pleasured, Thomas, to be powerful, Rajas. To be virtuous and know, have clarity, have light, sattva. So in this verse of Mahabharata, he's saying, I can finish with the whole world. And so far, moksha goes, liberation. Mama janmani janmanishvare. I have no interest in that either. This is a very startling idea. He has no interest in liberation. What is his interest? He says, I only want bhakti unto you, devotion unto you, life after life. I'm not interested in, in stopping the cycle of birth and death. Why is he not interested? Because it's already happened. As a byproduct of this chanting, it's happened. It's already come about without even thinking about it. You see how insignificant mukti, moksha is in relation to prem, love. What do we find here? Mahaprabhu is not interested in the pleasures of the world through dharma, artha, kama. He's not interested in moksha either. When we pursue pleasure, power, and virtue in relation to material nature. What we're really pursuing is that which is inherent in us. We are sat, chit, ananda. Sat means power. You exist. Security. As I said before, you, we cannot die. Why are you trying to not die? Trying to become deathless. You can't, why are you tr struggling for that? You see, it is a waste of time. Hmm? We feel our experience, colored as it is by the influence of matter, that our existence is threatened and we have to do something about it. 
Therefore, we work we, to, we, to, to, to get food, to eat. We, we feel that our, our, our sense of... Uh, uh, our existence is threatened in this plane. But the reality is there's no threat. This is how bewildered we are. Soul is sought. I mean, it is, what is soul? I mean, it, it, that is, we mean consciousness. There is matter and there is consciousness. What does that, that mean to us? It means there is that which is experienced and then there is the experiencer. So we are the experiencer and then there is that which is experienced. Which is more important? The experiencer is far more important than that which is experienced. In other words, as I said before, if matter mattered independently of consciousness, who would know about it? Who would care? When we lend our self, a unit of life, a unit of experience, we're an experiencing agent. When we lend our self to matter, it takes on an apparent life. It seems to come alive. We animate the world, but then we become suppressed by its influence and think that we depend upon it to exist. And if we don't have this or that, huh, how will we go on? Hmm? When we turn the whole show on, it's just like a bad movie. It's not really a bad movie, but we are on the wrong channel. <laughs> it's uh, something like that. Hmm. It doesn't have to be bad. Mahabhu says, I don't care to leave it. I have no problem with that. I'm not running away from the world, he says. There's a way to be in this world that it's, that it, uh, such that it's not a problem. No, so, we, why we shall struggle to, to have power, to security? Mahabhu realized, uh, there's no need for this. My position is secure. Satchit, knowledge, Hmm? We busy ourselves for uh, material knowledge that will set us free, relatively speaking. Hmm? No. He said, I, my experience is I'm a unit of knowledge, unit of knowing capacity. Knowing oneself, knowing oneself, one has infinitely more knowledge than if one knew the whole world. In other words, if one could count every atom and examine it in material existence, the amount of knowledge he or she would have would be insignificant in comparison to knowing one's own self. So why shall I worry about uh, knowledge and, 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 and virtue for that matter? It's synonymous in a sense. And pleasure, ananda, satchit ananda. Hmm? So joy has, self has capacity for all these things. And these things can be experienced in moksha, that we are sat chitananda. When we stop trying to become, and all the difficulty that's involved in that, we can just relax and be what we are. But Mahaprabhu is not content with that. Now, what is that discontent? We are discontent in material life because we are trying to become and it's obscuring what we are. 
Mahaprabhu has found out what he is in this verse, but still he's not content. Matter has pleasure, power, and virtue in a distorted way. The soul has pleasure, power, and virtue in a minute degree. Not perverted, but in a minute degree. And Godhead, these things are there unlimitedly. Sat becomes Sandini. Chit becomes Sangit. And Ananda becomes Ladini. Mahabhu wants to connect himself. He was connected with matter. He experienced pleasure, power, virtue, and so forth in a distorted way. Coming to taste one's, experience oneself free from the feathers of matter. Some contempt, some peace is there. Some happiness. But these are the things we're all really moving for, isn't it? As we've described. That he wants to experience them fully. In other words, he wants to be rather than become, but he wants to be all that he can be, all that the soul can possibly be. In other words, in material life we move because we're discontent. If we were happy, why move? We have a want, necessity, a perceived necessity, so we're moving accordingly. It's a sign of our discontent. So if you remove that problem of thinking that you have to be something, then you become content, peaceful, still. But if you look deeply then, as Mahaprabhu has done, into himself, the nature of the self, nature of consciousness, very deeply, hmm? not looking out, but within, he saw that there's potential movement that is not a result of being discontent, but it is the very product of being full, movement and celebration of one's fullness, not out of necessity, but out of joy, not out of incompleteness, but out of being complete. This is how his understanding of Krishna, this is Krishna. He says... The nature of reality is that it is moving, not still, moving out of fullness. It's so complete in terms of these desirable commodities, power, pleasure, virtue, so complete that it's moving, dancing. So to participate in that dance, this is his Namsan Kirtan, his singing, his chanting, Krishna Nam to enter into the Leela of Krishna and connect his Sat, Chit, Ananda with Sambit, Sandini, Sambit, Ladini. Hmm? This is the idea. Mahaprabhu is just in this fourth verse of Shikshastaka, just beginning to taste that. Hmm? He says, Mama Janmani Janmanishwari Bhavatad Bhakti Rahoyatakitoi. What is Mukti? Who gives a damn about it? He said, Who could care about it? It's no con- it's contentless. We want pleasure, power, knowledge. Yes, there's some of that in me. I'm a unit of that, but but this is what we want. And if you can't find that, 
deep within consciousness, when consciousness comes to Krishna, this is his idea, not just Brahman, stillness, but dancing, Bhagwan, Jagadishwar, Mama Janmani Janmanishwari, Bhavatat Bhakti Rahaitakitvai. This we call, this state we call Ruchi, means Mahabhava has got a taste. Previously he was chanting, and it was like medicine. He was chanting, looking that his life would become virtuous as a result of it, and unnecessary things, perceived needs, and the burden of pursuing them we be relieved of. Becoming relieved of them once practice becomes steady, one becomes like, uh, one, one begins to identify oneself as consciousness, really, not matter. Now moving deeply in that, what one did in the previous stage by spiritual intelligence kept fixed in his or her practice and the desires for becoming were, 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 were drowned Mm-hmm. By continuous kirtaniya sadahari, continuous practice, they were drowned. I mean, for de- of desires, for becoming, and the ignorance that that is the basis of that is flooded. Mm-hmm. The seeds are there, but they don't have a chance to fructify. And coming to ruchi, the heart begins to to to, to blossom as Krishna Chandra, the moonlike Krishna's comes into view. Now the desires are gone. Another desire is coming of another nature altogether. I only want this devotion to you. Mahabhu was attached to devotion itself. No interest in mukti. But speak of, of, of material pursuit. Some positive attainment. Never can tire of chanting, hearing about Krishna. What is, as I said before, was previously medicine, has become food now. Previously it was chanting, it was medicine. Now it's become food. He's living on that. He has no necessity. This is the upper end of what we call sadhana, spiritual practice. He's about to graduate almost and enter into the world of of um, spiritual emotion, sambit ladini, to unite his, his self, a unit of consciousness, with the reservoir of consciousness. And it all begins, as I said earlier, with some gratitude, showing some gratitude. That's the very beginning idea. So that's what Thanksgiving is about, uh, showing gratitude. And especially for those of us connected with Gaudiya Vaishnavism, we have much to be thankful for. Because what Mahabhu is, is talking about in the Shikshastakam, what his Leela is about, Anarpita Charim Charat Karunayabhutina Kolo. This doesn't come around very often, it is said. Very rare, rare thing. A thing that makes moksha, liberation, seem insignificant, like a firefly in the sun. I mean, this light is nothing. So, 
That's why I wanted to say a few words about gratitude. Any question? Yes, Jagadishwa. Interesting, you mentioned uh, Surya Namaskar at the beginning. Because obviously there's so many, so many levels to that gratitude for mm-hmm. the most base, basic level of providing for our needs on levels from most basic material ways. And then I guess not only the sun, but every element could be pursued to its finer aspects of gratified person. Surya Namaskar, it's Surya Narayan is the ultimate object that's thanked there and through Gayatri Mantra. And such. I guess I'm just reflecting on different levels of gratitude from a practical, immediate level and then it carries. Sun, if you do Surya Namaskar, that's of course a yoga asana. Asana, I guess it's called asana, yeah. Yoga asana, then we should... You should see the sun as symbolically representing God, if you will. It's a very uh, excellent uh, symbolic representation because we are dependent upon sun for our life. When it comes into our life, our, our day begins, when it disappears, our day sets, and so forth. So, in fact, he can... And rishis used to do that. They'd make an entire meditation out of the sun, which, who can miss it? Of course we do. We don't even think it's there. We just go about our our daily life without even thinking about it sometimes. Unless it's absent for a while, and then we get a little irritated. When is the sun going to depressed? Yeah, when is the sun going to come out? So, <clears throat> of course, they weren't living in an, an industrial society and so forth, so it uh, lent a little bit more naturally to thinking about nature and its movements. What could be a more prominent thing in our life than the sun's rising and setting and how little does it come to mind? This is how bad things can get, really. Nature is speaking to us. Bhagavatam says, Ayur Harati, Ayur Harati Vaipum Sam, Ujjanastan Chayanaso. Ayur means life. Like Ayurveda, life science, Ayur Harati, life Harati, is being taken away, Pungsam, for all beings, all humans. Ayur Harati, why Pungsam? How? Udjanastam Chayanaso. It's poetry. With the rising and the setting of the sun, everyone's life is being taken away. Huh. That's just like, it means that, Kal Chakra, it means the sun is sometimes called like the wheel of time. With the rising and setting of the sun, our sense of life, as we understand it, I'm an American or an Indian or Latin or Northern or Southern or male or female, black or white, all this, this sense of identity, that is that will not endure. The sun is with its rising and setting, is, with every rising and setting, the end of that life is coming closer and closer. So everyone's life is being taken away, life as we know it, by the rising and the setting of the sun. Sounds pessimistic, but the point is, if we are to look at that, to, if, we, if, we, if we actually contemplate that, knowledge will come. Because it's true, you see, it's true that our sense of self, based on this body, is being taken away with every rising and setting of the sun. That's a fact. 
So rather than say, that sounds pessimistic, I don't think I want to li- you know, lead a kind of a morbid life, Swami. No, it's not like that. It's true. It's a fact. Now, so if we embrace that truth, then more truth we have purchasing power for. The sun is telling us that. Of course, we can't hear it, so books are written, like the Bhagavatam, with this kind of poetry, Arhayati Vaipum Sun. It just means we're not paying attention to what the world is actually saying to us. Hmm? As I said earlier, we we can't see without the sun. But we don't think. We think that, hey, my eyes, I'll cast them where I want. My senses, whatever they want to do, I have a right to do. Hmm? But we don't have to think that our senses' capacity to function is dependent upon different aspects of nature. So there should be some gratitude. So there's a relationship between my seeing and the sun. If I don't acknowledge that, then I'm an ungrateful person. And I'll be in ignorance to some extent. Rather to embrace this truth, for example, that the rising and setting of the sun is taking away my life, that you will find if you embrace it, your life won't be pessimistic. It will be optimistic. Because the next line of this verse comes and says, One who embraces this truth, actually he or she finds a life beyond the body. One finds, oh, but... It's just, see, I'm not the body. I'm, I'm the experiencer. The experience is passing, but not me. It's a passing experience. But I'm the one experiencing. I endure. Hmm? So, this way, uh, Surya Namaskar is useful. Hmm? Think like this. We can learn from nature. It's speaking to us very loudly, actually, but we are drowning it out for the most part. Another question? Okay. So, As you like. Siman Mahaprabhu ki jai, Shri Shikshastakam ki jai, Bhavad Bhaktabhinda ki jai. Bhavad Bhaktabhinda ki jai.